We'll hear argument this morning in case 08-1457, New Process Steel versus the National Labor Relations Board. Mr. Ritchie. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the issue in this case is whether the National Labor Relations Board can continue to issue adjudicatory decisions when its membership falls to two. The National Labor Relations Act clearly states that at all times a quorum of the Board will be not less than three members. The Board's interpretation — Is it your position that all of the actions of the Board, including those taken by uh, the regional uh, offices and by the general counsel and by everybody else, is inoperative once uh, once the membership falls below three? Uh, no, Justice Scalia, particularly with respect to the general counsel, the statute at 153D has a s- separate uh, enumeration of, of obligations and powers and authority. So we don't think that that fails. There, we also think that with respect to certain administrative — Well, it has a separate, uh, uh, separate authorization for these uh, uh, three three-person adjudicatory panels as well, doesn't it? It has — it does, uh, Justice Scalia, it does have a separate um, authorization for panels of three or more members. It does not have, as in this case, a separate authorization for panels of two members. Okay, but that's a different argument from the argument you were starting off with, which, as I understood it, was once the, the membership of the Board falls below the quorum of three, by reason of that, the three former three-member panels, of which there are now only two left, cannot act. Is that your argument? It is our argument that, the, that once the membership falls below three, that the national the membership of the board. I'm sorry, Your Honor. The membership of the board. When the membership of the board falls below three, but we also believe that when the membership of the group falls below three, that the delegate group's authority to make adjudicatory decisions lapses. I understood that argument, and I thought that was the only one you were making, but you're making the broader one, that it also happens whenever the, uh, uh, whenever the board's quorum disappears. You're correct, Justice Scalia. We are making that argument. It's because of the first sentence of 153B, which states that the delegations have to be to members of three or more members. So the regional offices can't function of, of the NLRB? Well, we believe they can function. They can receive, for example, um, um, unfair labor practices complaints. They can't make adjudicatory decisions. And we think that that is exactly what — Can the board pay salaries? We believe they can because there's probably a different statute uh, that enumerates that, Justice Scalia, other than this statute with respect to the authority with respect to um, adjudicatory decisions. I'm really uh, reluctant to rely upon this first argument that you're making uh, because I really don't know what it does to all of the functioning of the board. Uh, well, one of the — Justice Scalia, um, one of the things that we think is clear is that the remedy for fixing an undersized board is not for the board to redefine itself and to read the statute, but for Congress or the President to act. And there are many ways in which the President uh, and Congress could could fix the problem of an undersized but board. But here, the, the Court of Appeals said that the — Act does two things. First, it says that the full board can delegate full powers to any three-member group. 
That was step one, and that was done here. And then it says there's this rule that a quorum is three, but then it said except as to one of these three-member groups that has been designated, except, and there the quorum is two. So why doesn't the statute answer the question that, yes, a quorum is three, except when it's two? I think there's two answers to that, Justice Ginsburg. One is, here the, the government, the board, uh, takes the position, as they say on page 29 in a footnote to their brief, that when a delegate group possessed of all of the board's power acts, it is acting as the board, as not as an agent of the board. So first we would say that the second form provision isn't even applicable to this group that was um, established uh, of, of members Kersenau, Liebman, and Schauber. And so we think the three-member quorum — I didn't understand that. Would you, would you make that argument again? Certainly, Justice Scalia. The, the, the government — I'm sorry, the government, the NLRB, in its brief, in footnote 21 on page 29, as well as uh, in the delegation, minute, the minutes of the delegation in 2007, which are found in our brief in uh, the appendix on, um, I think it's pages 4A and 5A, both say that when the, the NLRB says in the footnote, when the delegate group possessed of all of the board's powers, which is what we have here, acts, it is acting as the board and not as an agent of the board. So our position is that when you become the board, as this group did, now you're subject to that minimum three-member delegate, three-member It's not an agent of the board because the three-member group that has a quorum of two has the full powers of the board. So the statute doesn't say anything about three-member group that has a quorum of two being an agent of the board. It's a, it's a group that is delegated authority, and therefore, even whether it's a full delegation or a partial delegation, we believe that the common law principles of agency and principle make that delegate group But where does the statute make the, that three-member group with a quorum of two, a quorum of two an agent? It says they may be designated to exercise any and all powers. Justice uh, Ginsburg, it does not say the word agent in it, but the delegation that it's referring to is at common law a, a principal agency relationship. And so it's our position that once that delegation occurs that the — in a normal situation, because you could have a three-member group of uh, four members, a board of four or a board of five, and you could have a group with three members. When the delegation is made, is our position, and we believe that this is the position that the uh, D.C. Circuit took as well, that that's a, an agent of the board. You, you, should, you should have a, a very direct answer to this question. Were, were you finished? Because I, I don't want to interrupt that train of thought. If you uh, the, the D.C. Circuit, I think, was the source of your opening argument, because they said when the number drops below three, there is no board. And I guess that's what your opening argument was based on. Yes, Justice Ginsburg, it did say that. But it also went on to say that it was applying the rules of common law rules of principle and agency. 
and that when the Board, without three members, lost its authority to act, that the delegate group to which the delegation was made also lost authority to act. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. We had a three-member Board. Actually, we had four delegate to three, and then two terms expire. Well, just on this same point before Justice Breyer, I think we move to another point. The statute does use the word quorum twice, uh, and as Justice Ginsburg has pointed out, except that two members, in its last phrase it uses the, the, the word quorum twice, except that two members shall constitute a quorum. It doesn't say two members may act. Justice Kennedy. It shall constitute a quorum. Uh, Justice Kennedy, I think we have to start first. I mean, you're, you're correct. There are two quorum provisions, but quorum is not defined differently. Quorum, I think we agree with the NLRB that a quorum is the minimum number of members of a body necessary to transact business. We have two different bodies defined in this statute. We have the board as one body, and we have the group as a different body. And so when the, when the exception uh, appears in the statute, uh, we agree again with the D.C. Circuit's interpretation of that as simply defining two different numbers of people necessary to fill out a quorum of these two different bodies that are defined within the statute. Can, can you, if, if you're right, it seems to me you should have a very clear, concise answer to the question that I'm just going to ask you. Uh, and this is the question. Imagine that there was no delegation, none. Now we have five members. Is that right? One of them dies, so there's a vacancy. Now, can the remaining four exercise the board's power? Clearly. Clearly. Okay. So what is the difference between the situation I just described and this situation? Where? The board simply delegated its power to three people, and one of them dies. What's the difference? I can't find any difference in the language. So what is the difference? Justice Breyer, the difference is that in this statute, there is a clear statement that at all times the board must have a three-member quorum. In your hypothetical, there were still four members. The Correct. board was still a- Except that two members shall constitute a quorum of any group designated pursuant to the first sentence, which says the Board is authorized to delegate to any group of three all of the powers which it may itself exercise. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is that once the — if the difference between the hypothetical and the situation we're in yes. is that there were four members. And the statute well, I know that, but I'm asking why does that make a difference? It makes a difference because the statute requires that at all times the board shall have a quorum of three members, a minimum Except. quorum of three members. But and what — isn't that tied to a quorum for the board as a whole to act? Once it's delegated a responsibility to a three-member board, it's already said, unless it takes another vote, that it's going to let those three people decide. It has — I understand the word delegated to mean it's given over its power to a subgroup. If it wants to take it back, it needs a quorum to do that. That's what I understand. Well, I think the problem is, Justice Sotomayor, that 
the delegation to a, member, to a group of three is indeed a valid delegation. We, we don't contest that. But what we have here is a phantom group. And what the, what the board said, because, because Member Kersenau, um term expired in December, about 10, 11 days after the delegation. And if you look at the minutes of the board when they are delegated to the, to the group, it says in the minutes that they are continuing to be a two-member quorum of a three-member group, as if member personnel is a phantom member. It's a fiction. The group ceases to exist. And the board, so it's not just that the board falls below three and the board ceases to exist with all delegated powers to this group. The group ceases to exist. But that's bringing you back to Justice Breyer's hypothetical. There's five members on the board. But clearly, they can delegate under the statute. Now there are only four members. Something happens to the fifth. Uh, under your theory, the entity that originally delegated no longer exists. And therefore, the group, the entity that received the delegation of powers must, must, cease, must cease to act. Justice Kennedy, I, I mean, if, 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 the, if the quorum of three that uh, authorized two to act disappears, and that means the principle is no longer there, so the agent can't exercise the authority, why isn't it the same when five become four? Well, we believe the reason that it isn't, Justice Kennedy, the same is be terrible sense. The, it's not the same because the statute contemplates vacancies on the board and it, it multiple vacancies so long as they don't go below three. The statute, the vacancy clause in the statute doesn't apply to a group at all. And so the delegating group in the hypothetical clearly re is still in place as the board because it's the board that delegated and the but board still exists. As far as the interests of your client are concerned, is there any functional difference between what happened here and what could happen very routinely, even if the board had five members, namely that after the case was assigned to a three-member panel, one of the three members of the panel became unable to sit on that case, but the remaining two members were able to reach agreement so the case could be decided. Justice Alito, the difference is that here there was never a way to reconstitute this board as, I'm sorry, the group as three members. When you have five or you have four members of the board the, and a member of a three-member group is unable to perform his or her function. Well, isn't there another difference? Uh, is, it the, is it not the case that the decisions of these panels can be appealed to the full board? Are they automatically final? Can the board not uh, revise the decision of one of its panels? Well, I believe that the board could revise the decision of one of its panels. Well, you've got, you got to tell me more than you believe it. What, what is the case? The adjudication is final. The adjudication the, the is final. There, there's, there's no appeal to the full board. That's correct. Okay. Then what, what is the reason? I, I now see your answer to my question is that the vacancy clause applies to the full board but not to the group. That's correct. That's okay. Correct. Now, got that answer. Uh, and now I see how you could read the statute that way. Well, so now I would like to, and that would be in your favor. And, and therefore, I would like to know, since you could also read it the other way, why should it be read your way? I mean, I can think of a lot of reasons why not, 
One is some that Justice Scalia was raising. It may work havoc as to what uh, uh, remains effective, what doesn't, what about the board staff decisions, which are, which aren't. I can see a lot of reasons for not doing it. But what are your best reasons for reading that vacancy clause the way you want me to read it? Justice Breyer, we, we believe that it is important to have a promote, uh, to have a robust debate and an expression, of po- a potential for an expression of dissent. And what you have here is you have two members in a group and who have publicly announced that on more than one occasion over the last two years plus three months when this uh, board has sat with only two members, that they have um, sometimes compromised their opinions in the interest of the institutional purposes, basically to keep the doors open. And so you don't have a full and robust debate you don't have the potential for an expression of a dissenting view, and that's the, that's the distinction that but we see. But the problem is that that exists whether we read your rule or not in the way you want. You've, you've conceded that a three-member board could lose a member, a three-member group could lose a member, and its acts still be binding, as long as you say there's, um, there's three members on the full board. But this lack of opportunity for dissent exists any time there's a vacancy. You just don't like the system. Justice Sotomayor, if we consented that when there was an absence, a member who dies, retires, is incapacitated, that the two members of a properly constituted three-member group could still function, I certainly did not mean to say that. We do not consent to that or agree with that proposition. Uh, I'm sorry. You're now saying that the group always has to be three members? Yes. That somebody can't die, leave, recuse themselves from that group without invalidating the actions of that subgroup. Where in the statute do you read that limitation when it says a quorum of two is okay to act? The definition of a quorum, Justice Sotomayor, is the minimum number of persons of a body necessary to transact business. The body here is defined as three or more people. So when I'm talking about the group. I am, too. So the group is not defined as three or more people. It's defined as three. The board is defined as three or more. The group is defined as three. So I'm, I'm a little confused. In the statute, the group is defined as the board is authorized, and I'm reading from 153B, Appendix 1A, to our brief. The Board is authorized to delegate to any group of three or more members. I see. Any or all of them. That, that is where we find it necessary that the group must contain at least three members. That's, that's a totally different argument from the one that relies upon the size of the Board, right? It is, and we think it's an additional argument. We even, think even if the Board were still properly constituted and had a full five members, if one of the three members to a, a, a board should die, uh, it would no longer be a three-member board and could no longer be, as your argument goes, the recipient of the delegation, right? That's correct, Justice Scalia. But what's happened routinely through, for 60 years, since 1947 when Taft-Hartley was passed, is that what the board did is it reconstituted the panels any time a member died or retired. There have been situations before where the board dwindled to two members. Is this the first time 
that the board has continued to adjudicate the cases that they can, or when there were prior periods with only two, did the board continue to adjudicate? This is the first time, yes, for over from 1947 through 19 uh, through 2007. Any time the board fell to two members, as far as we know, any time the board fell to two members, the board reconstituted. I'm sorry. Any time a group fell to two members, the board reconstituted, reconstituted the group to a three-member group. There's a well-established practice on the Court of Appeals that when a three-judge panel, for some reason, loses one of the members due to a death or resignation or recusal, the panel can continue to decide the case if the remaining two judges can agree. And, and do you see, you think the, situ- the situation is different with the NLRB for some reason? Or do you think that, that, all, that those decisions on the Courts of Appeals are unlawful as well? Well, Justice Alito, I think it's a different statute. But we also, I also think the Court of Appeals, which is the delegating body that forms the, the three-member courts, still is in existence. Uh, and we just think it's going Well, you're shifting argument. You can't keep jumping back and forth between the two arguments. The one is that the appointing body has to still be fully constituted or at least have a quorum. And the other one, which I thought Justice Alito was addressing, is the quite separate argument that the recipient of the delegation has to be three. And when it falls below three, it's only two. And I don't know that you have a response to, uh, uh, to, to his point with respect to the latter argument. Except, uh, except that it's a different statute. Well, I, Justice Clay, it's a different statute, but it's also a very temporary and limited circumstance. You have a panel that was formed to hear a case. Here, you've got a delegation of all the authority. The board has the group has become the board, and we effectively have a two-member National Labor Relations Board. So, so I would have thought that this is only me, since other people don't necessarily go in for this kind of argument. But, but in thinking of the 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 uh, uh, arguments in your favor, uh, the one that sort of resonated a bit with me was that this is a very Republican Congress in 1947 that passed Taft-Hartley, and one of the things they were really aiming at was to move the board from three to five. And uh, this is a way of uh, — so that that just doesn't happen. But I assume from the briefs filed that there's no supporting legislative history for that, what I've just said, so I better wipe it out of my mind. <laughs> Oh, if there's no legislative history, it couldn't be true. <laughs> Justice Breyer, I, the legislative history, I think, is there is no legislative history on what happens when the board falls below two members. But it is clear that after, from 1935 to 1947, the board was made up of three members, and the statute clearly said under the Wagner Act, two members could be a quorum of a three-member board. In 1947, when Taft-Hartley was passed, Congress intentionally increased the quorum and increased the size of the board. If it had intended to have only two members serve at any time as a two-member board, they would not have — that would be a strange way to do it in a statute that not only increases the size of the board, but changes the minimum quorum requirement from two to three. I was surprised by your your answer to — I was surprised by your answer to one of the earlier questions. Because one of your amici says that any member of the board, regardless of whether he or she sits on the panel hearing a case, may request that the case be heard by all five board members. Is that, is that not correct? That is correct. 
But that's to hear it as opposed to overturn it once the decision. Heard a, an initial an initial decision, but just the the review of the panel is in the court of appeals, right? That's correct. Yes. So you can have initially a panel of five, but that would not be reviewing a panel of three. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. The 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 five member board would not review the three member group's decision. But in response to Justice, what's the use of having a five-member board? Then I really don't understand what what has been accomplished. What was if, if you have a you're changing? Oh, we had a three-member board. That's no good. We thought that's unfair. We're going to make it to five, but then we allow the five to convert themselves to three for finally deciding all cases. What what has been accomplished? Multiple, Nothing. I'm sorry, Justice Scalia. Multiple members of three, and so before you had. A, a, without a delegation, you had a group of three members. They could, that group could hear or, or board. Well, the, the amicus says that the members of the board who not serving on a panel are given the opportunity to review draft decisions. Thus, no case will issue unless it reflects the majority opinion of the full board. It's, it's so there can be, in effect, the opportunity for full board review before a draft decision is issued in final form. Is that the way it works? Yes, Justice Alito, it does. Only, that's not only if a majority of the board wants to do that, right? No, Mr. Chief Justice. One member of the poll board can re- overturn a group delegation? In other words, and, and hear the initial decision? No, Mr. Chief Justice. They can agree to, um, to review the decision, and they can agree before the, the decision is made to join the panel, basically, is what they do. What if one board member wants to do that and four don't? What happens? One member wants to join the panel? One member wants to review the group's decision. That member would review the group's decision. He wouldn't be able, he or she wouldn't be able to overturn the group's decision. I'm really confused now. Is it or is it not the case that the full board has the power to review a decision of one of these panels? Before you said no, before you said it's final. The decision is final once it is rendered. They can review the decision in draft form before it but that's is rendered. That was my question, whether they — they can review it before it is rendered? Is that what you're saying? They can do that, or they can ask to be included on the on the. They panel. can review it before it is rendered. Okay. Is but this, is this different from the practice that some courts of appeals follow of circulating a panel decision to the full court — uh, some days before it's issued to, to the public. That doesn't put the non-panel members on the panel. Is this practice that you're describing the same, or is it different? I believe it's the same, Justice Ginsburg, that it's exactly the same. But, but you have an additional but opportunity. But that's quite different from the Court of Appeals sitting and bank. The practice of circulating an opinion does not put all of the members of the court on the panel. That's correct, Justice. But it provides an opportunity for them to vote to hear the case on bank before it's ever issued. That's correct, Justice Alito. It does, and, it, and there you, for, therefore you have what we don't have here is an opportunity for a robust debate. If there are no other questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Katyal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. 
We agree that the plain text controls this case, and there are three features to that text. First, Section 153B permits delegation of any or all of the Board's power to three or more members. Second, that section sets out a general quorum rule of three members. And third, as Justices Alito and Justice Alito, Kennedy, and, and Ginsburg have pointed out, there is the phrase except that in the rule, a special quorum provision that sets out panel quorums at two members. And in this case, faced with a vacancy crisis, the Board validly delegated its powers in December 2007 to a three-member panel. Petitioners have never contested otherwise. Rather, they argue that when the Board dropped down to Just before the third member uh, no, longer became, no longer was a member of the Board. That's so knowing when it gave it to this three-member panel that it would shortly become a two-member panel and that thereby the Board would be able to act with only two members instead of with three, which is what the quorum requirement for the Board is. I must say that seems to me a very strange procedure. When you have a statute that says the Board has to, has to have three for a quorum, when the Board sees, oh, God, we're, we're about to lose uh, our third member, let's set up a three-member panel with this guy who's about to go off. It will immediately become a two-member panel, and then we can act with only two members. That's wonderful. It doesn't seem to you like an evasion of the whole purpose of the, of the quorum requirement? I, I don't think so. I think it's precisely oh. what, was, what the text of allows, because it's not, Justice Scalia, simply <coughs> a three-member quorum requirement. It's a three-member quorum requirement, except that. Except, may I just interrupt with that? Just on the except clause at the very bottom. When you're talking about individual cases, it's easy. Sure, one member dies, the other two can finish. But you're talking about long-run governments of the board. The two two members shall constitute a quorum of any group designated pursuant to the first sentence. Now, two years later after the two, what is the group designated pursuant to the first sentence at the time of the decision two years later? Right. It, it is the same group of people that but There's were, no such group that well, exists at the time of the powers being exercised. Well, Justice Stevens, the language is written in the past tense. It's any — the, the language, and this is found in the government's brief at 10A. No, it's not it's, the past tense. It, Two members shall constitute a quorum. Of any group designated right. pursuant to the first sentence. But there is no group around at the time there — that this case is being decided that was designated before. The, the, that group was designated on December 20th, 2007. But, and but that, your, that your, your inquiry is focusing on what happens two years later. And, and with respect to two years later, I submit to you that that penultimate sentence in 153B is met. That is a designated group pursuant to the first well, sentence. I don't know how you could write the sentence without the ED, unless you want to say to make your point, the statute could have been written the other way, to any group continuously being designated. Sure. I think you could say something like constitute a quor- that two members shall constitute a quorum of any group that continues to meet the requirements of the first sentence thereof. You, read, you can read this, the language the way he wants. That's because of the vacancy clause. You see, there, there's a sentence there that says a vacancy shall not impair the right of the remaining members to exercise the power. That implies in the absence of that clause, five to four, they couldn't. Okay? Now, you say that clause applies to the remaining members, i.e., to the three. And now we don't have 
three. And since we don't have three, uh, there are, uh, and uh, you have to have three, because they're not, there's not, they're not the remaining members, you see. Right. So let me say a few things about that. The first is. As long as there was another member, you could, you could do it. But without that remaining member, you can't. So the, the first thing to say about that argument, yes. Justice Breyer, and it's one that Justice Scalia brought up to my friend before, yeah. it is a totally different argument. It yes, really yes, does yes. rest on the first sentence yes. of 153B, yes. and my friend admitted it's a totally yes. new, yes. different yes. argument. Right. It's not in the question presented. It's not before well. the Court. Uh, but were the Court interested in it, I do think that the language of the quorum provision, quorum meaning a number sufficient to transact business, is the most relevant language, and that suggests that two is enough, so long as you have that initial delegation to a group of three, and then one member drops off. Well, don't, don't, don't you think it is significant that the, the vacancy clause that you were discussing, uh, where is it? It's in B. Uh, a vacancy in the board shall not impair the right of the remaining members to exercise all of the powers of the board. And it says nothing about the vacancy in the group. That's not impairing the power of the group. The, the which, which, which buttresses, it seems to me, the argument that when the group is no longer a group of three, the delegation is no longer effective. I, I don't think so. The, the, the language is a vacancy in the board, in the board shall not impair the powers of the remaining members of the board. Of and the so, board. Of the board. And the, it doesn't say that about the group. That, well, that's my point. But by definition, Justice Scalia, the members that have been delegated this power on December 20th are members of the board, and they're not, they're not simply uh, extraneous actors. And no. so the vacancy clause, I it's, think — This whole passage distinguishes between the board and the group. I mean, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean the group when it says the board and the board when it says the group. Uh, well, I think it doesn't — I don't know that there's a distinction. I think that there, they, when they say the board, it by definition includes the group, uh, because that is part of the board. They aren't extraneous individuals. Well, so that's central. So like the quorum, I'm sorry. No, ahead, the quorum for the group should be three, then, right? Uh, the quorum — well, except that, Justice Scalia, it says — it goes on to say that the quorum is actually two. Let, let's say the board delegates to a group the authority to act as the board until December 31st, 2010. Uh, and on December 30th, 2010, the group uh, uh, delegates to itself, because it's acting as the board, the authority to act until December 31st, 2011. Is, is that valid? Uh, well, if, if the initial delegation did give any and all of the powers to the All the powers of the board until December 31st. And then, uh, then I take it, yes, they could exercise that delegation. So a delegee can delegate to itself the full authority uh, of the, uh, the master in the master-agent relationship. Under the statute, now there may be other problems with it. So 153A, which is found in our brief, in our government brief at page 10A, sets out, for example, removal for cause. And if some members of a group were some, no, no, they're just you know, to, they they make the decision that the board should continue to function, yes, even though their original delegation was limited to 2010. Right. They, acting as the board, get to delegate to themselves as the group the authority to go beyond that. Right. I, I suppose that — I mean, it's not presented here, but, yes, I suppose that would now, be permissible. Now, what if the board, consisting of five members, let's say three Democrats and two Republicans, 
The three Democrats delegate to a group the authority to act as a board. They designate themselves as the members of the group. They have at that point authorized themselves to act as the board with as little as two members, even though they couldn't have done that as members of the board. I think that's, that's right, Mr. Chief Justice, and it underscores that the statute itself can't control all of those problems and whether you set the quorum at three or two. Even if you have a full board of five, you can have these machinations that are even though potentially the whole pur- Even though the whole purpose of expanding from three to five was to ensure that more than two were required for the board to act. Well, I think that the purpose, as the legislative history reveals and it's set out in our brief, was to increase efficiency and to have overlapping panels adjudicating cases. I do think that there's, a prevent, there's ways to prevent your situation from happening, that, and they include not just removal for cause, which I think this would be the paradigmatic case if three members of the body were trying to cut out two members from doing their job. Not trying to, but succeeding. Well, in succeeding. It, so. Absolutely. And I well, think I mean, it depends upon who would remove them for cause. Absolutely. No, and who would remove it them? It would be the president. Uh, well, what if he's perfectly content to have if, two Democrats? Right. And then you'd have other, you'd have other checks as well. Uh, if, if you had one-party government and all of these factors aligning in the way you're suggesting, you'd have uh, the possibility that the, that the circuit court's review under 160F might come into play. I mean, uh, uh, because each each board decision can be potentially appealed to a circuit court. There's budgetary processes. Well, I just want to make sure there's nothing to constrain. If you have three Democrats, three Republicans, or two Republicans, or, of course, the other way around, nothing to constrain them from acting fully as the board with only two I don't think the statute itself constrains it I, under either my friend's reading or mine. I think that rather it's a matter of etiquette, practice, tradition, and all sorts of institutional checks that are laced into the way in which the — Is there any other legal — this is what one thing, if I were thinking without the language for a moment, and, and I — the Taft-Hartley Congress did, I think, want to limit the powers in a number of ways of the Board maybe expand the membership to be sure there'd be both parties in larger numbers. Uh, if you could limit this to adjudications, you'd say, well, then they can't set major policy with just two members. But I don't see a way to do that, particularly since the Board has often set rules in adjudication, mm-hmm. which have broad application. So am I right in thinking that we have to decide either it is okay for two members to set the most major policies, or we have to say they can't even conduct adjudication, well, I even the simplest adjudication, even the, the least significant. I, I think, that, Justice Breyer, that the Board traditionally doesn't engage in much rulemaking. It does make its decision. No, no, but it, that is a rule. They set a rule in the adjudication that has. And, and I do agree that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that at stake here is the potential to decide cases. Now, when you mention the Taft-Hartley Act, I think that that legislative history is important for a different reason, which is up in, from 1935 to 1947, and this is set out at footnote one of our brief, that board decided for over 460 cases as a two-member body. There was a vacant third position. And there were two years of debate, contentious debate, as you, as you alluded to before, about Taft-Hartley, and yet they left that piece intact. They permitted two-member bodies to decide these cases. And uh, so to the, to the extent legislative history is relevant for members of the Court, we suggest it strongly suggests that what the Board did here 
faced with this vacancy crisis, uh, mirrors what happened between 1935 well, and suppose, suppose our first inquiry were agency law, and we concluded that under agency law, when the principle ceases to exist, the agent may long, no longer function. Let's, let's assume we conclude that under agency law. Could you then cite us a case or a rationale for saying that agency law should not apply to a government agency to a problem of this site? And if so, what is your authority? Sure. So they're, they're set out at page 28 of our brief. Uh, they're United States versus Wider, the two Donovan cases. I think it is a long-established principle that principal-agent relationships, which we don't think ne necessarily apply to this case, but even did you th even were you to disagree, as the premise of your question suggested, that government delegations survive the loss of that principle. Was this, this your point that uh, official acts done stay in effect even though the official is gone until the official's successor in office is appointed and that successor can remand the instruction? That, that's, that's but that is correct. like the de facto officer doctrine. It could be. Uh, that if the petitioner prevails here, the de facto officer doctrine would leave in place everything that's been done. But, but Justice Kennedy, though, that's a but different. I, it's, it seems to me that's quite a different different point. Absolutely, that's a different point. What I'm saying, and what these cases say, is that, uh, for example, when an attorney general designates their power to wire, the wiretap authority to a subordinate, an assistant attorney general, and then that attorney general leaves. Uh, office, that wiretap authority nonetheless continues in the subordinate until it is revoked by a successor. But hasn't the, the situation that has prevailed now for some time changed the, the decision-making process of the Board in at least two important ways? That first, there isn't any opportunity for full Board review of cases. And, but more important, if you have only two members on the Board and only two members on the panel, the, the process is very different from a panel in which there were three members or in which two members can be supplemented with an additional member if they can't agree. What are the two to do? They have to, they have to split the difference all the time. And there have been decisions in which the members have basically have suggested that that's exactly what has happened. Right. Justice Alito, I'm not here suggesting that the two-member board is ideal or equivalent or optimal to a uh, an optimal uh, thing. Congress set out five. But faced with a vacancy crisis and shutting down the board entirely, I think the board did the prudent thing here by continuing to operate, continuing for these 800 or so days to decide these board cases. Not only is the not ideal, do you think it re reasonably possible that Congress back in 1947 contemplated this particular problem and would have solved it the way you suggest? I do think that Congress had before it a well — it was well known that over 460 times the Board had decided cases with only two members, with a third being vacant. But that's I think always that's, when that's there, is, there is in existence a th three people who could have served. But the particular problem we've got now, going on for two or three years, all the decisions by two members. Do you think Congress would have authorized this? As opposed to shutting down the entire board? Yes, Justice Stevens. I think that's well, a perfect depends. Problem. I mean, if shutting down is the only way to put pressure on Congress to, uh, I mean, you, you may have a Congress that is just delighted to have only two Democratic uh, members left on the board and all the cases decided by two Democratic members. What possible incentive does that Congress have to increase the board to, uh, to the level that it should be? None. If you want to solve the crisis that you're so worried about, the, the only way to solve it is to say, 
boy, you know, there's uh, it, it's Armageddon coming. Uh, we're 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 going to not be able to act at all. Well, that I, would solve the crisis. I, I think the politics in Armageddon could cut different ways depending. On, I mean, these are nomination battles that are focused on individual personalities. And Justice Scalia, the only empirical evidence we have, this isn't the first time the board has done this. Uh, contrary to my friend's uh, suggestion earlier, in 2005, the board was faced with the exact same situation. The board was going to go down to two members. They decided to do the exact same delegation uh, and give, give the, all the powers to a group of three. And four days later, Congress fixed the problem with the President. I'm and much more impressed by, by your, your opponent's uh, uh, assertion, which I don't think you have contradicted, that for many years, whenever there was a death in one of the three-member panels, that panel was reconstituted. A new person was appointed instead of just letting it uh, continue to operate with only two. Right. Doesn't that mean something? Doesn't that suggest that these panels were viewed by the board as requiring three people? No, it suggests that they thought three was optimal where it was from where they could get three bodies, but here when they only have two. And again, faced with shutting down and not deciding the lion's share of cases, which aren't the controversial ones that give rise to the disagreement, Justice Alito, that you were positing, uh, they've decided to go and do it and do their business and, and, uh, and try and resolve these. And they've done, I think, the corpus reveals a really remarkable job at reaching agreement uh, in a large number of cases on the basis of existing precedent. Are these decisions? How, how, has, it, how has it worked? And I, I understand that they are not dealing with controversial decisions. And these, how many decisions are there now? Uh, I believe that there's uh, 586 or so decisions that they have rendered, and of those, they have set aside about approximately 70. It was 65 as of a few days ago, and it's gone up so, uh, uh, because they involve uh, questions about overturning precedent or novel issues, and so they haven't reached agreement in those. What, what actually happens on the ground? You, somebody complains about an unfair labor practice to uh, the board, and let's say that uh, the petitioner prevails and the, and the board can't function. What, what happens next? Is there, I don't know if it would be a review or not, but can you go to the Court of Appeals? If the board is disabled? Yeah, assume there's no board. As you say, the, the, the problem that would happen if you don't prevail. Uh, well, if there's, an, if there's no board, then I take it the cases would get stuck after the ALJ. There's nothing to take exception to. Uh, and so I'm not sure they could go directly to the Court of Appeals because the statute 160F, I think, doesn't permit review from an ALJ decision directly up. It permits review only of the board's decisions. And if there's no board decision, then presumably these cases get stuck uh, until we have a three-member uh, quorum. And is, is it correct, just numerically, that, that, in fact, under identical language, except the word and changes to except for, uh, the, from 1935 to 1937, there were two member panels, and they decided about 400 cases. And then they took the same language. And now since 1947, roughly, what are the figures? How many cases? Has it only been this instance where it's been two members, or have there been other instances? Well, it, the, the board only went down to two members as a whole starting in 1993. It's happened four times. In 1993, for two months. In 2001, I believe, for one month. In 2005, for only a few or days. Is that when the 400 cases that you're talking about were? 
the, the 460 cases were between 1935 and, and 1947. And how many cases were decided by two members about? I'm not asking for during the times you're talking about before the present two-member boards. In, in, in 1993 and in 2001, the board didn't do this because those were short periods of time. Mm-hmm. In 2005, they did do precisely what they did here, but Congress resolved the situation, so there are only about six cases decided in that four-day period. And now, from 2007 to now, uh, approximately 586 cases or so. But they never did decided. it when they had a full board. They never they, delegated. Whenever there was a, a death of uh, one of the members of a three-judge panel or a three-member panel, they, they filled it. And, and the panel did not operate with two. Absolutely. No, we're not standing. Even though it could have. Even though the quorum provision was just as it is here. It could have, but it's not did optimal. did not operate with two. Absolutely. Okay. It's not optimal, Justice Scalia, to have two. But if, if the choice is shutting down or going with two, the Board made the choice in this circumstance to go with more. And, Justice Breyer, you had mentioned before the change and the word except that. And I do think that that's crucial language, because that is a subordinating conjunction. And what it does, it is essentially modify that. The two-member quorum language modifies what happens before the at-all-times. Well, you need the except that once you have language. Um, you need it because now you have a bigger board, and it says it's a three-member quorum. Precisely. I thought they, they simply are taking the earlier phrase, the earlier statutory phrase, and they're changing those words because grammatically you now need it. Precisely correct. You need it grammatically because otherwise, if you didn't have something like that, it would suggest that the panel quorum would be three as well. Um, but, but the language is quite specific on this, and contrary to what the D.C. Circuit found, uh, at all times is modified by that subordinating conjunction in the phrase that What, what authority does the uh, ALJ purport and, in fact, exercise? He's not acting or she's not acting for the board? Uh, the, the ALJ is appointed by the board, and they uh, essentially write tentative decisions that the board, as I understand it, can, uh, appro- can approve or disapprove. Exceptions can be taken by litigants up to the board. Well, under the petitioner's theory, if there's no quorum, would those appointments then be invalidated, too? Well, well I th- and this goes to Justice Scalia's first question of the argument. I, I think that it's possible. Uh, I think that there is — the D.C. Circuit's reasoning is potentially — could be read so broadly as to say that the entire board goes poof and everything under it, including the salaries. I think if the Court were inclined to to write a decision like that, we would try to look to, as you mentioned before, the de facto officer doctrine and the specific language of the delegations to the ALJs and the specific language to the general counsels to try to see if there's a way to preserve all of the board's action in this circumstance. Of course, that isn't before the Court at this point, but I understand that the dramatic consequences, potentially dramatic consequences of the D.C. Circuit's ruling may inform the judgment. Do we have any notion when, when the Board will reduce to one? Uh, we, uh, when when, when, the, when is, is one of the two's term uh, over? In the absence of any further confirmations or other appointments, uh, that uh, one of the members, Member Schomburg, will leave on, on August 27th of this year. Of this year. And then At the, which point there will be some pressure on Congress, I guess, right? The, yeah. there, there are two nominees on the not. Uh, there are three nominees pending three? right now, yes. 
and, uh, and they've been pending. They were named in July of last year. Uh, they were voted out of committee in October. One of them had a hold and had to be renominated. That renomination took place. There was a failed quorum, uh, a failed cloture vote in February. And so all three nominations are pending. Uh, and I think that underscores the general contentious nature of the appointment process with respect to this set of issues. And the recess appointment power doesn't work. Why? Uh, the, the recess appointment power can work in, in a recess. Uh, I think our office is opined the recess has to be longer than three days. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it is potentially available to avert the future crisis uh, that, that, could that could take place with respect to the Board. If there are no other questions. Thank you, Council. Uh, Mr. Ritchie, you have three minutes remaining. First, let me address the, the issue of what happens if we prevail, how will the problem be fixed? Uh, there are two types of cases. There are representation cases, and then there are um, cases dealing with unfair labor practices. The unfair labor practices, Mr. Chief Justice, have a limitations period to them. The, the, issues, uh, the um, issues with respect to representation have no limitations. So. In response to Justice Ginsburg's comment, I believe it was Justice Ginsburg, there's a, when a successor comes on board, uh, these issues, if, these, if, if we prevail and our decision is vacated, those are, are, can be reheard by the board when a successor uh, is in place. The D.C. Circuit. Excuse me, ju just, the just the representation cases, not the unfair labor practice case. That's correct. Well, wouldn't it, well, except to the extent, Justice Scalia, that statute, that limitations has not run on the unfair labor Yeah, I understand. Cases. Well, I would, wouldn't this, the statute of limitations at least be told during the period when they can't do anything? I suppose that's That's an argument. Case. That's a different case. I, I don't know the answer, and I'm sure litigants would argue that. Uh, with respect to the issue of the — whether it's three members that are required on both the board and the group — the D.C. Circuit didn't deal with that, but they did deal with the exception issue. And they said — I'm reading from uh, the appendix, page 89 of our petition. The board quorum requirement, therefore, must be satisfied regardless of whether the board's authority is delegated to a group of its members. A modifying phrase such as, as this, talking about the at all times three members, denotes that there is no instance in which the board quorum requirement may be disregarded. And then the Court said, it is therefore de defies logic, as well as the text of the statute, to argue, as the Board does, that a Congress which explicitly imposed a requirement for three-member quorum at all times would, in the same sentence, allow the Board to reduce its operative quorum to two without further congressional authorization. Except that it said except, at all times except. <laughs> And, Justice Ginsburg, that was what the D.C. Circuit was referring to, was the accept that language and saying in that same sentence where there's a requirement at all times of a three-member uh, quorum of the Board, that it is — it defies logic that Congress would in that same sentence state, except when there is three that falls to two. And I, I think the other thing that I would like to conclude is that the um, — my time's up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.